somewhere deep in the caverns of the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library in College Station, Texas, a document sat silently for more than two decades. The classification code words on the cover page and at the header and footer of every page after made it clear that if possible, these pages should never see the light of day. Top secret. Umbra. Gamma. Win intel. No foreign, no contract. Orcon. These compartmentalizations read out this way. Top secret, which is, despite your average conspiracy theory, the maximum base classification restriction. Communications intercepts, known as special intel, then had three levels of subclassification. Very restricted, exceptionally controlled, and gamma. Gamma then had several sub-sub-classifications. Moray, for the least sensitive that still required codeword protection, spoke for slightly more sensitive information, and Umbra for the most sensitive. Umbra Gamma is therefore the most sensitive of the most sensitive comment or special intelligence. Then when Intel, that's WN Intel, warning notice. Intelligence sources and methods involved. No foreign, no foreign nationals, no contract, no contractor employees, regardless of their clearance. Edward Snowden continues to remind us why. And Orcon, originator controls dissemination and release of the document, meaning only the source can release it for any other use, in perpetuity. This indicates some of the most tightly held pages of classified material produced during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. The document was produced by the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board and dated February 15, 1990, and the title was The Soviet War Scare. The existence of the report was first made public in Don Oberdorfer's book, The Turn, From the Cold War to a New Era. Its existence, not the document, had been leaked to him. But as anyone who does archival research will tell you, simply knowing that a document exists does not mean that a document is available in any meaningful form, and often in no form at all, as was the case with the War Scare report. The gargantuan network of interlocking documents, references, and notes that exist in any given topic in the government archives means that even when a massive report is entirely secret and completely withheld, there is a void in the shape of that document. Sometimes, by studying the outline of that void, the agencies involved, the classifications and the restrictions, it's possible to learn what the document might have to say. More often than not, it leaves more questions than answers. But at least a researcher can know what those questions should probably be. Questions about the seriousness of the Great War scare that culminated in the winter of 1983 to 1984 have been asked since the teletypes of the Autumn Forge 83 exercise were still warm. The initial U.S. intelligence reaction 
was that there hadn't really been a war scare at all. The scents seeping from the Soviet side through leaks like the famed double agent Oleg Gordievsky was that there had definitely been a war scare, and at its center, the now infamous Able Archer 83 exercise, which simulated the release of nuclear weapons in a wartime scenario. These opinions, and what little information there was, both public and classified, were recirculated, reinforcing themselves and offering no particular resolution in what historians and analysts came to describe as an echo chamber of inadequate research and misguided analysis. But it seemed increasingly clear that the elusive 1990 report to the president would include the information needed to break the unending spiral of debate. Was the war scare real? Or was it all a bunch of banging on pots and pans? The first effort to jailbreak the report came in 2004, when the National Security Archive at George Washington University requested a mandatory declassification review. What is universal in the archival system in the United States is that the process is painfully long. How long depends on how long the agencies involved want it to be. Once filed, the request enters what the National Security Archive has referred to as a referral black hole in which responsibility for final declassification invariably resides in another agency or another department. With no progress apparent on the request for the 1990 report to the president, in 2011, another mandatory declassification review was filed, which disappeared into the black hole. A year later, the National Security Archive was forced to push harder and brought the case to the Interagency Security Classification Appeals Panel, ICAP, referred to as the Secrecy Court of Last Resort. If a request takes too long or the denial seems unreasonable, ICAP's experts will break the deadlock. In this review, it was discovered that an unnamed and unknown agency had kept the George H.W. Bush Library from conducting the mandatory declassification review for years and had not conducted its own legally required review since receiving the request in 2004. The unnamed and unknown agency was the CIA. Don't tell anyone. More years would pass, but eventually, finding on behalf of the National Security Archive, the all-important final word on the Great War Scare was declassified nearly 12 years after the first request. So, what did that report reveal? After all of these years in the academic echo chamber, was it all real? Or was any of it? After years in the pop culture echo chamber, was Abel Archer 83 really almost the end of the world? Was Lionel Richie's All Night Long going to be the last number one chart-topping hit before global thermonuclear war? Peaking the week of November 12th, 1983. Let's find out, this time on the Cold War Vault.
January 1983, Yuri Andropov, who was at that time the head of the Soviet Union, had a discussion with the former mayor of West Berlin, Hans Jochen Vogel. The notes of that meeting quote Andropov this way, You said that Washington does not want war. I don't want to speak such banal truths, but the fact of the matter is that we have an accumulation of dangerous weapons. When it comes to the accumulation of nuclear weapons, it is even more dangerous. After all, at the button that activates the nuclear weapon could be a drunken American sergeant or a drug addict. There were also occasions when the Americans fired rockets at flocks of geese, and if these rockets fell in our territory, it could lead to war. As I've said before in this series, perception of reality is far more important than any kind of objective reality. It was the fiction nurtured and promulgated by suspicious minds that was the danger in 1983, not the objective reality. War was not about to start based on what actually was. It was about to start based on what was perceived to be. Moscow perceived a threat that wasn't there. Washington perceived an obvious and open character to the exercises that Moscow did not share. What were those exercises? What are we talking about when we look at the culmination of the war scare in autumn 1983? To the disappointment of many Cold War history enthusiasts and aficionados of tales of nuclear doom, Abel Archer 83 was not exactly the cause of the crisis. But the name of the exercise has become shorthand for the wider war scare and for the tensions of late 1983 in particular. But that's historically incorrect. As Nate Jones of the National Security Archive reminds us, the name Abel Archer 83 became a stand-in for the entire war scare after revelations about the incident on the 16th of October 1988 in a Sunday Telegraph article titled Brink of World War III, when the world almost went to war. Since then, the term Abel Archer has been used by the historical and journalistic communities to refer to the exercise that brought with it so much danger but it was only a very small command post exercise at the very end of a series of exercises more deserving of blame for ratcheting up Soviet anxieties. The name Abel Archer was largely unused by those referring to the various operations and was, according to the head of the Soviet general staff, Marshal Sergei Akramayev, unknown to the Soviet leadership. In subsequent analysis, this assertion by Akramayev has been used as evidence, or absence of evidence, that Abel Archer wasn't really a big deal at all. And certainly it didn't rise to the level of a global nuclear crisis. But Akramayev does say in the same interview with Oberdorfer that we, meaning the Soviets, we believed that the most dangerous military exercises were Autumn Forge and Reforger. And so a lack of specific recollections of the name Abel Archer might not be the best evidence for a general lack of danger. And that brings us to what it is that most people probably mean when they mention Abel Archer 83, which was 
just the last piece of Autumn Forge 83, a massive NATO war game designed to simulate a conventional war against the Warsaw Pact in Europe. The U.S. Secretary of Defense during the 1983 exercises, Caspar Weinberger, said the difference between a realistic exercise or maneuver and what could be preparations for an attack, that line is sometimes quite blurred. It seems this is especially true when the exercise is designed to exhibit realistic features in an effort to present a show of force to the adversary. It's blurred further still when that adversary suspects that there is a good chance that the blurry line might be crossed. The 1982 iteration of Autumn Forge included 24 exercises under that operational umbrella. Like the following year's Autumn Forge 83 and the winter exercises between them, known as Wintex, Everything was designed to simulate and demonstrate the U.S. full reinforcement of Europe in the event of a crisis brought on by the Soviets. Not only that, but it simulated the transition to a crisis state from military vigilance to DEFCON 1 and the release of nuclear weapons. According to the March 1983 record of the impressions of the senior leadership in the wake of the Wintex exercises, there was a hint of a forewarning that the nuclear aspect of the war game might be problematic. The included presentation offers the warning that the U.S. nuclear play caused confusion and that there may be an apparent lack of adequate control on nuclear procedures. The 1983 Autumn Forge exercises occurred at the height of Soviet suspicion and in the most rabid phase of the Operation Ryan information-gathering campaign designed to find any evidence at all of preparations for a preemptive attack on the Warsaw Pact. Autumn Forge 83 consisted of at least 13 exercises, and certainly a few more, each with their own participants and purposes, but all operating under the umbrella scenario of a Warsaw Pact incursion into Western Europe and an ensuing conventional war. These exercises were Oxbowl, Crested Cap, Golden Thunder, Quantum Jump, North Wedding, Bold Guard, Brave Guy, Cold Fire, Carbine Fortress, Apex Express, Display Determination, Reforger, and of course, Able Archer. These each had different participants and goals, and overlapped from August 6th to November 11th, 1983, when Abel Archer was terminated. A map offered to planners in a 1983 briefing gives an idea of the massive expanse of these exercises. The footprint of the individual exercises was Europe-wide, from Scandinavia to the Mediterranean, and from bases in the United States to the shores of the Black Sea. Some were somewhat small, some large, 
some very narrow in scope, and some very broad. For instance, the Oxbow component, known more specifically among participants as the Oxbow Tactical Fighter Weaponry 83 exercise, is described in a brief history of the 112th Air Operations Squadron. At the end of August 83, essential mission equipment and men were transported to Kurup Air Base in Denmark. The 112th was housed at a Danish tank base in Hostebro, and began to operate in the Oxbow wargame capacity for more than a month before lifting all of the men and equipment to Aviano Air Base in Italy for the next exercise. That shift was the beginning of Display Determination 83, which was a component exercise that lasted from the 17th of September to the 15th of October, involving aircraft operations and bombing runs between Aviano and the live fire range at Montiago. In fact, all of the exercises were interlocked and each served the overall scenario of Autumn Forge 83. That is, the response to rising tensions with the Warsaw Pact over a period of about two months, culminating with Abel Archer, the command and control nuclear release exercise at the beginning of November. Of all the exercises, by far the most troublesome to the Soviets was Reforger 83. Amid everything that was going on in Europe with NATO, the movement of troops and assorted simulations, Reforger 83 was a significant escalation, certainly in the suspicious eyes of the Soviets. Reforger, meaning return of forces to Germany, was the largest of the Autumn Forge exercises. Of all the U.S. troops that participated in Autumn Forge, 84% of them some 16,000, were airlifted to Europe during reforger over the course of eight days. What the Soviets saw in the first wave was a C-130 Hercules and a C-5 Galaxy laden with equipment and supplies, then 25 commercial flights transporting troops and an additional 156 C-141 Starlifter flights. Of those, five participated in an intercontinental airdrop on the 19th of September, resupplying troops on the ground and turning back to the continental United States without landing. Adding to the nervous suspicion, the transatlantic military airlift was done in radio silence. The thousands of additional troops, now in bases across the NATO countries, met up with heavy equipment transported by ship across the Atlantic. In the second wave, the second half of the Autumn Forge exercises and reforger, lasting from the 16th of September to the 15th of November, troops were redeployed on a C-130, a C-5, 33 commercial flights, and 135 C-141 missions redeployed, according to the war game scenario, to more forward operating positions, and, as the Soviets believed, to staging areas for a real war. 
After the strategic airlift, the troops and massed materiel began to make their way to the German border. The Autumn Forge exercises became tactical. Rivers were bridged and armor massed on the Autobahn. The civilian airport at Dusseldorf was receiving military planes, as it would in wartime, and the troops were shuttled off to dispersed staging areas in small towns away from major population centers. At Wiesbaden, the U.S. airbase had been reactivated, routing C-130s on supply runs to the front and hosting A-10 Warthogs that engaged in attacks against the 3,500 tanks and armored vehicles involved in Autumn Forge. The attacks were virtual, of course, as were the casualties they produced. Those casualties were sent back to Rammstein, loaded onto C-130s, and shipped to the rear in Upper Hayford, England, where they were transferred back across the Atlantic to hospitals in the United States. The combined participation in Autumn Forge involved more than 40,000 troops shifting around Europe, coming into uncomfortably close contact with the Warsaw-packed frontier. Defining the entire endeavor, the Military Airlift Command's top general in Europe, Major General William E. Overacker, said, It is both political and military. In the military sense, it allows us to practice what we might one day have to do for real. It allows the army to come to the theater where its forces would be deployed and to the places where they might have to fight a war. So, the same soldiers in the same fields. As I mentioned earlier, that musing from Caspar Weinberger, the line between a realistic exercise and preparations for a war certainly seemed to be blurred in the autumn of 1983. Now, it should be said that the United States continued to see these exercises as routine, as they had been conducted for years. But there were some irregularities that were picked up and taken seriously by the Soviet data collection program. First, the military flights of the airlift, between 160 and 170, shifting 19,000 U.S. troops to Europe, were all done in radio silence. This additional element of realism was a training facet of the exercises for the Military Airlift Command, but for the Soviet Operation Ryan, a preemptive military operation against the Warsaw Pact would demand nothing less. During the exercises, the command staff was ordered to transfer from the permanent war headquarters to the alternate war headquarters, located, for the sake of the exercise, in Birkenfeld, codenamed Crest High. While there, the participants were required to wear chemical suits and gas masks, which they had to wear during a chemical attack required by the scenario. While this was going on, multiple communications referred to B-52 strikes instead of B-52 sorties, a semantic error indistinguishable to most civilians, a subtle mistake to the wargaming participants, but another point of data that matched the Soviet model designed to sound the alarm of an impending surprise attack. The Soviets also had a certain number of unconventional responses, all of which 
were systematically ignored, largely because of the institution-wide disbelief that they could possibly see yet another Autumn Forge exercise as anything but just that. A large exercise, but an exercise nonetheless. The constant refrain, woven through the history of the period, was that the United States would never start a war with the Soviet Union. It was such a clearly defined and enunciated part of U.S. doctrine that it seemed unbelievable that the Soviets would think otherwise. But, despite the assumptions, during the war scare, the Soviets did think otherwise. Remember that the war scare, as we understand it today, was a multi-year process of heightening anxiety on the part of the Soviets, all while the United States remained either blissfully unaware or confidently in denial. The section of the 1990 document, Relating Unusual Soviet Reactions, remains heavily redacted. The sections that get into greater detail reveal sources and methods. But the shape and structure of the heightened Soviet alarm is clear, even if every detail of the substance is not. So is the way with this kind of historical research. By late summer 1983, the Soviet leadership seemed to be preparing the population for war. For the first time in some years, the location of air raid shelters was being advertised with posted signs and workplaces were including air raid drills in their daily activities. And Dropoff distributed a letter to be read in closed party meetings, reiterating that there was indeed no hope for salvaging peaceful relations with the United States. The rhetoric was heightened after the U.S. invasion of Grenada, with the Kremlin declaring the operation a bandit attack and a crime against peace and humanity. Along with the rhetorical attacks and the disconcerting reinvigoration of the civil defense program, the military made concrete steps toward heightened readiness. In October, with Autumn Forge already well underway, Marshal Kulikov announced that new nuclear missiles would be deployed to Czechoslovakia and East Germany. In fact, the preparations had already begun. Along with that, the Soviet Air Force in Poland and East Germany received orders to reduce arming times for aircraft with nuclear missions. The maximum allowable time, you ask? 25 minutes for one weapon and 40 minutes for two. It was the first, last, and only time that Soviet air bases in Poland and East Germany had been put on alert during the Cold War. As the Soviets furthered their readiness, both civil and military, conventional and nuclear, at a time when some Soviet leaders had become almost frantic over the threat of war, Abel Archer commenced. On that day, the 7th of November, Grigory Romanov, member of the Politburo, gave a speech at the Kremlin. In it, he stated, The international situation at present is white-hot, thoroughly white-hot. And that brings us, of course, to Abel Archer, to the dramatic, now infamous pinnacle 
of the war scare. What was it? And why is it so frequently regarded today as a moment when the superpowers nearly crossed the threshold into war? More dangerous, perhaps, than even the Cuban Missile Crisis. Able Archer was the last exercise in Autumn Forge, and it lasted from November 7th to November 11th. The pieces and participants of Autumn Forge would all be swept up and sent home by the 15th. Able Archer had been an annual exercise, and though there were some aspects that deviated from the norm in 1983, the existence of the exercise itself was not a surprise to the Soviets. It was a command post exercise designed to test the procedures that would be used in the wartime release of nuclear weapons. A command post exercise means that it was a field exercise involving only command, staff, and communications. And while the troops in the field didn't play a role in the scenario, in many very real ways, their presence during Autumn Forge and Reforger was the precursor to the nuclear release. It was, after all, the European conventional war that escalated into chemical, biological, and nuclear war by November. In the game, of course. The number of actual participants in Able Archer 83 isn't precise, but it's likely only around 200. Small for its potential historical impact. Certainly vanishingly small compared to other exercises under the Autumn Forge umbrella. The overall responsibility for the exercise was at the highest level of command in Europe, SACUR, at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Power Europe, or SHAPE. From there, the major subordinate commands participated, coordinating their principal subordinate commands and several other low-level war headquarters throughout the Allied Command Europe. In the exercise scenario, discussed earlier in this series, tensions between Blue, NATO, and Orange slash Orange Bloc, the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, had been ratcheting up for months. On the 4th of November, three days before the start of Able Archer, the war game describes massive air and naval attacks from Orange on Blue. Orange invades Norway. The day before, Orange had invaded Finland. Also on the 4th of November, Orange crosses the interior German border and invades Greece. On the 6th of November, Orange uses chemical weapons on Blue due to significant resistance. This continues into November 7th, and this is where the command elements in Europe joined the exercise, the first day of Able Archer. On the morning of the 8th, Sakur requests permission for limited use of nuclear weapons. Permission is granted by the evening. Those weapons are used against Orange on the morning of the 9th, two days after the start of the exercise. Orange is unfazed by this and continues its push through Germany and into Western Europe. Late on the 9th, Sakur requests additional nuclear weapons. On the afternoon of the 10th, this is granted. 
In the early morning of the 11th, the second nuclear strike is carried out. Able Archer 1983 ended a few hours later, midday, on November 11th. All of this was by the book, and according to the shape historian Gregory Pedlow, there was actually less nuclear play in 1983 than there had been in previous years. So, what so spooked the Soviet Union about Able Archer 83? Well, as with Autumn Forge and Reforger generally, Able Archer had new features and irregularities that U.S. planners simply failed to recognize as potentially alarming. The 1990 report to the president calls them, modestly, wrinkles. In the final analysis, it was these wrinkles that were at the center of Soviet anxieties. First, the nature of communications traffic was significantly different from previous years, and different from what the Soviets had become accustomed to. The exercise emphasized command and communication from headquarters to the subordinate units. This gave the appearance of actual, not virtual, command of the deployed conventional forces. Also, in previous years, NATO moved into Able Archer with forces at general alert. But in 1983, communications moved those forces from normal readiness through alert phases and finally to general alert, a real-time escalation of apparent readiness. I mentioned earlier some of the reactions to the wider war scare by the Soviets, but as Able Archer got underway and anxiety became more acute, the responses became more focused. The Soviets launched 36 intelligence flights, more than in any previous Able Archer exercise. Soviet strategic and naval aviation missions were flown over the Norwegian, Baltic, Barents, and North Seas looking for evidence that the U.S. Navy was deploying to a forward position in support of Able Archer. Along with this, Soviet nuclear weapons were transported to their delivery units by helicopter. A suspension of all flight operations was issued from November 4th to the 10th, with the exception of intelligence flights, probably to make as many aircraft as possible available for combat. A 30-minute readiness time for air units was invoked, and priority targets for nuclear strikes were assigned. There are many, many more of these actions that were taken, though they remain entirely redacted in the 1990 report. Given the size of the black blocks censoring the information, the readiness actions taken by the Soviet military were wide-reaching and may very well have brought the Soviet Union to the final phase of preparation necessary to launch a nuclear attack, whether retaliatory or preemptive. A simple, single order away. There are many more years and many more requests for declassification between our eyes and the words hidden behind those big redaction blocks. What is clear from what is known, and what can be read in the extensive documents from the war scare, is that while the U.S. undertook its game, seemingly nearly oblivious to the danger, the Soviet Union was ready for a fight, even if it might be the last.
In June 1984, the director of Central Intelligence, William J. Casey, sent a memo to Ronald Reagan that contradicted the entrenched U.S. opinion that the war scare was all bluster. He listed what he termed a rather stunning array of indicators of an increasing aggressiveness in Soviet policy and activities. These indicators were varied, from domestic activities to international mobilizations. According to Casey's estimate, in the years and months and even weeks before Autumn Forge 83, the Soviets had heightened their domestic public awareness campaigns surrounding civil defense and the preparation of Soviet civilians for war. They tightened security procedures that were already fairly tight regarding Westerners, even casual tourists, preventing normal interaction with the civilian population. Also apparent for anyone with the interest in simply observing it, the Soviet Union had shifted its economy to a wartime footing, starting in 1980, but increasing as Reagan's first term wore on. Where the military had in previous years supported the national harvest, it was now removed from civil duties. Heavy industry, normally allocated to agricultural production, such as tractor plants, were converted to tank production. Aircraft production moved away from commercial airliners in favor of military transports. Troop rotations were delayed, deployments of the full range of Soviet special forces were increased, reserve forces were called up, and active duty tours were extended. And of course, underpinning all of these changes, Casey's memo describes extraordinary intelligence directives for the purpose of warning, which is a reference to Operation Ryan. Casey went on to contradict the entrenched belief. He wrote, It is important to distinguish in this category those acts which are political blustering and those which may be, but also carry large costs. He described those costs as a series of risky trade-offs. Resource vulnerability for the sake of improved military power, that is, the vulnerability of the harvest improved civilian readiness at the cost of consumer discontent, and enhanced military readiness at the cost of troop dissatisfaction. Casey pointed out that none of these were trivial costs. They were real choices that were being made with sometimes painful costs attached. This, he suggested, indicated that the Soviets were not just blustering, they were genuinely concerned. Resistance remained within the intelligence community and only began to loosen when further investigations into the war scare years were carried out. First, after the defection of Oleg Gordievsky in 1985, who brought knowledge of the extent of the Ryan operation, and then with further revelations from intelligence sources, who still remain secret, by the way, in 1987. Further secret sources supported the reporting on the Soviet side of the war scare in 1988. Though all of this evidence that supported the position that the Soviets were genuinely concerned, more than concerned, about the outbreak of a nuclear war due to U.S. surprise, remained tightly compartmentalized and very, very secret. But the 1990 report 
somewhat scathingly, says that the last, most definitive intelligence community word on the Soviet war scare would have been destined to languish in an annex to the 1988 National Intelligence Estimate on Soviet capabilities, were it not for the retiring director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Leonard Perutz. In what is described as his parting shot before retirement, Perutz sent a letter to a range of people at the highest levels of U.S. intelligence. The letter outlined his disquiet and general dissatisfaction with the way that the war scare, and particularly the Able Archer phase of the scare, had been treated by the intelligence community. Perutz had seen the Able Archer exercise from the inside out as the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence for the U.S. Air Forces in Europe. In this capacity, during those tense days of the Able Archer exercise, it became clear that the Soviet Air Force had increased its alert status. While normal procedure would have been to raise U.S. alert status in turn, Perutz made the recommendation to leave U.S. alert status as it was, to essentially ignore the Soviet activity. The 1990 report of the event describes the decision unflatteringly as having been made in ignorance, ignorance of the complete factual picture, but calls it fortuitous if ill-informed. Having worked in Air Force intelligence his entire career, something perhaps not quite quantifiable, more instinctual, motivated Perutz to ease the tensions. Among many, many other people and factors, it is fair to say that the decision made by Lieutenant General Leonard Perutz during Able Archer was at least helpful and possibly pivotal in preventing escalation to an unintended war between the superpowers. What is a certainty is that the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, its constituent members, were on the list of recipients of Perutz parting shot, that last letter that described the need to fully understand what happened during the war scare, and particularly during those dangerous days in autumn, 1983, when it looked to the Soviets as if the U.S. and NATO were on the warpath. The President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board listened to that January 1989 letter and took up the task. The complete investigation was finished a year later, an unapologetic pursuit of what really happened during the war scare and the failings of the intelligence community to fully realize the weight of the situation. Elements of that intelligence community stubbornly blocked efforts to reveal the contents of that report for the next 15 years. But for what we now understand about the war scare of the 1980s, about the dangers of Autumn Forge and Able Archer, we can thank the dogged efforts of the National Security Archive and the agitation of Lieutenant General Leonard Perutz, who knew that there was an important, perhaps life-saving lesson to be taken from a crisis born entirely out of faulty assumptions and mistaken perceptions. What had been dismissed for so many years as Soviet paranoia or propaganda had been a genuine war scare, after all.
thank you for listening to the Cold War Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. If you're interested in the declassified documents I've mentioned in this episode, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. All of those documents will be available to supporters. You can follow The Vault on Facebook at Cold War Vault, Twitter at the same, and, of course, see the show notes at coldwarvault.com. Until next time.